0: Uh, so, last week we started our series, we are looking at relationships. Um, we are exploring what those are, what they mean. Um, while we're doing this, uh, the first reason is because I think relationships are the most tangible way that we grow in grace. Um, sanctification, that's the way that we, uh, that we change, the way that we grow. Um, we're, we're studying relationships because relationships are complicated. Uh, and if you look to one source, you get really bad advice, you look to another source you get really bad advice. So we want to sit down together and look and ask, what does the Bible say about how we relate to other people? Um, and we, we said last week that one of the, um, kind of, uh, presuppositions for what we're doing here is that if the Bible is the word of God, as it says in second Timothy three, and it equips us for every good work, then part of that good work is relationships and the way that we relate to other people. Um, and then I want to say this again. I'm going to try to remember to say this every week that as we talk about some of these topics that we're going to get into um, as we deal with uh, relationships, with uh, with family stuff, with friendship stuff, with dating, with marriage, with sex, with technology, with all this stuff, this is a safe place for you to ask questions. Um, and actually in a couple of weeks, we're going to change from our small group format after large group to a Q&A format where you can kind of anonymously text me questions and we'll Talk about them. I'll I'll try my best to answer them, or I'll say, I don't know. Let me get back to you on that. Um, Which is always, which is always a good answer. Um, But uh, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing this. And so tonight, um, tonight, I titled tonight's sermon uh, created for covenant. We're going to look at Genesis fifteen, but we're also going to be pretty heavily in Romans five. But I'm just going to read Genesis fifteen. So this is the word of Lord. After these things. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, the smoking firepot and the flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, To the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Um, I I pray that tonight you will uh, help us to understand what it is that you're saying to us here. Uh, Help us to understand this kind of weird passage. And uh, and Lord, I pray tonight that you will... um, Once again, Lord, please be faithful to strike a straight blow with the crooked stick. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, that is admittedly a weird passage. Um, It's this kind of obscure Old Testament text. Uh, Colin is laughing because Colin knows this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, and I've been longing for an excuse to preach it. But um, this is a weird passage, and it's one of these that, it's one of these that if you've ever kind of uh, committed to doing like a year, like read through the Bible in a year plan, you get to that and you're like, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to stop this whole plan. Like maybe maybe you made it all the way to Leviticus, but usually you get about halfway through Genesis and you're like, I'm out. Um, and I understand that. But I want to suggest to you tonight that this passage actually shapes everything about the way that God relates to us. And if we're going to understand uh, if we're going to understand relationships, we have to understand how God relates to us. That's, that's the, one of the most foundationally important things that we can talk about. And um, there is this, uh, there's this theologian you might have heard of. His name is John Calvin. Um, he, uh, he, he talks about in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he talks about that the knowledge of self and the knowledge of God are, are linked together. That to understand yourself, you have to understand God. And to understand God, you have to understand yourself. And that's what Genesis 15 helps us to see. It helps us to understand more about God. And so I want to suggest to you tonight, using this passage, Genesis 15, that you were created for covenant. That you were made to be in a covenant. And um, what happens is, because we either don't understand this or we misapply this or we just don't believe it, um, our relationships with ourselves and others get messed up because our relationship with God is messed up. That if you have that off, if you have that out of whack, then then your relationships with everybody else are going to be And I want to try to make that case for you tonight. So the first thing that we need to, 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 the first question we need to answer though is what in the heck is going on here? And what in the world does this passage in Genesis 15 have to do with relationships. So the backstory here, <clears throat> this is Genesis 15. That means there's Genesis 1 through 14 before it. Um, and Genesis 15, though, we're talking about this man, Abram, who uh, later would have his name, change, name changed to Abraham. And so Abram one day <clears throat> is just kind of hanging out in his hometown um, in, a, in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. And God calls him away from Ur of the Chaldeans into a place that he'll tell him later. So, This God that he doesn't even worship, he doesn't even know, is like, hey, leave and go somewhere else. And he's like, sure, I'll do that. And God tells him later that that God was going to make a great nation out of Abram. That that, that God was going to make a nation of people that's going to outnumber the stars in the sky. Which we see that in this passage that he he says, if you're even able to number the stars in the sky, your descendants are going to be greater than that. And so, and so Abram is sitting here and he's looking around. And he's like, okay, God, I believe you, but I'm, I'm super old. Uh, my wife is also super old and we don't have kids. And how's that, how's that going to work? And God says <clears throat> in verse nine, God says, I'm going to show you how you know that I'm going to keep my word. And he tells him, he says, bring me a heifer three years old, <clears throat> a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, the turtle dove and a young pigeon. And so Abraham does, he goes and he gets it and he, and he cuts them in half except for the birds. Cause I guess birds are too small to cut in half, uh, but he cuts them in half and he separates them. And, and what is, what would have been immediately familiar to Abram, which we don't necessarily understand because this is not ha- like <clears throat> when you come to church, like you don't have to get your like prize lamb uh, to come and like slaughter, you know, in the worship service, um, That'd be weird. Um, you don't have to do that. But this would have been very familiar to Abram because Abram would have immediately known that these animals in this arrangement was a setup for a covenant-making ceremony. And actually, the, 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 the way that um, the Hebrew describes making a covenant actually is the verb cutting a covenant. So Abram would have immediately known what was happening. And so he, so he knows what's about to happen. And so what, is, what then is a covenant? Um, we just sang uh, Promises because it fits with this passage. Um, but 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 that song talks about God being a God of covenant. And um, one of my favorite theologians, a guy I love to read, uh, his name is Palmer Robertson. <clears throat> he calls it a bond in blood, sovereignly administered, which is a pretty cool sentence in and of itself, like a bond in blood. Like that sounds violent and awesome. But, uh, but basically what you have is you have two parties you have one sovereign party, one party that's kind of in power that holds all the leverage. And then you've got the subject and they're making a deal where the only way out is death. That they are making this deal to say, the only way that we get out of this is for one of us to die. Which is why when you go to a wedding, uh, you hear uh, oftentimes the phrase, till death do us part. That, that, that what that's hinting at is that as two people become one, that the only way out is, is death. And traditionally, the ceremony would have gone this way, that Abram would have, would have laid the, the animals out, and there's the pathway through, and, and the sovereign, in this case God, would walk through to say, if I don't meet my end of the deal, may I be cut to pieces like these animals. And then the subject, in this case Abram, would have walked through and said, if I break my end of the deal, may I be cut to pieces like these animals. That would have been a normal thing to do. um, And they would have have immediately known, okay, this is what's happening. And so here's some things that God's going to do. Here's some things that Abram's going to do. And if either one of us breaks it, we die. But that's actually not what happens here. Because what what happens here is that God puts Abram into a deep sleep. And God reminds Abram of his promises in verses 13 through 16, that I'm creating a people, I'm giving them a land, and they're going to descend from you. And then in verse 17, we see, this, we see this thing where God shows up in the form of no oh, Siri, um, God shows up in the form of a, a, uh, a fiery pot and a smoking torch, which also like when you get to the Exodus, that God leads them with a the fiery and cloudy pillar and a pot of smoke. So you know, lots of great imagery here. But what happens is, God passes through both times. So that where Abram is expected, expecting that he's going to take on the penalty of death on himself if he messes up, God actually says to him in this ceremony that if I break my end of the deal, may I be cut to pieces like these animals, and if you break your end of the deal, may I also be cut to pieces like these animals. So what God is saying in this ceremony is that I am going to be the one who is going to take on the full force of this promise. This is the pattern for how God relates to his people in Scripture. That God, God uh, throughout Scripture, makes these um, what we call self-maledictory oaths, that God promises harm upon himself if the promise is broken. And so if you think about um, you know, the, uh, the rainbow being the, uh, the sign that God gives Noah, that he'll never flood the world again. Like, we look at the rainbow, we're like, oh, what a pretty like, peaceful thing. Like, it's a rainbow, that's great. But, but actually what God is saying is this, is this is my warrior's bow hung in the sky and it is pointed at me, not at you. So that again, if I break my promise, may the arrow of my wrath come to me. May it pierce me. But what God is doing in Genesis 15 is he's, saying, he's taking that a step further and saying that I'm going to be the one who pays for both ends of the deal. So that's... That's what's happened. That's this passage like explained, right? Um, but I want us to look a little bit further because we talked last week about how you were designed to reflect something and what you reflect changes everything. But the Bible really only presents you with two options of what you're gonna, of what you're gonna reflect. Um, and, and Paul lays this out in Romans 5, 12 through 21, that Paul writes about either being in Adam or in Christ. Listen to this from 12, uh, Romans 5, 12-14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come so when, when, when Paul is talking about being in Adam or being in Christ, he's talking about this idea of, of covenant headship, which is like a 50 cent theology word. You can forget that word immediately as soon as I say it. But it's like, like, think about it, like, think about it this way. Covenant headship looks like this. Um, on, uh, on Sunday, um, we, uh, so since I've moved to Tennessee, I've kind of become a, a fledgling uh, Tennessee Titans fan. Um, I'm... I'm I have, I have some... There's some oldest players there that I love. Uh, Derek Henry, Henry wants me to fantasy games. Like, it's... I, I'm starting to like the Titans. I've never lived in this state that had a professional team. Here we go. But, uh, but there, were, there, were, there were thousands of people who were, like, devoted to the Titans, right? Like, they love the Titans. They've always loved the Titans. Some of you are in this room. And, unfortunately, the Titans lost um, in the playoffs to Joey Touchdowns, and that's just a bummer. But... Um, but what, what, what happens, the Titans go out and they, and they play a football game, but they represent more than just the team, right? They represent the people that are pulling for them. And so when the Tennessee Titans win, we're like, oh, hey, we won. We beat the Bengals. You didn't beat the Bengals. You didn't, if you set foot on the field with the Bengals, they would kill you because, like if like, in fact, this happened in the Sunday night game that a fan ran into the field and Stephon Diggs absolutely murdered him because... Normal people um, don't really match up to athletes. I love there's an idea out there. This is a tangent, but uh, there's an idea out there that like in every Olympic sport, they should pick one random person to compete in it just so we see how much better like Olympians are than normal people, right? But like you didn't win a football game, but because the Tennessee Titans represent you and you can replace whatever your favorite team is, the the Titans, um, they represent you. So you won, like you claim victory. And when they lose, you say, "We," but you didn't do anything, right? That's kind of that same idea. That like in Adam or in Christ, there is someone who represents you. There is someone who takes on um, the, the effects of being you, essentially. So Adam, in his covenant with God in the garden, represents all of his descendants. And what Paul tells us in Romans 5 is that In Adam, all fell. The Adam being the representative of humanity, when he failed, when he fell, we all fell with him. And so that actually changes everything because we're born with Adam as our covenant head. And what we end up doing is we end up seeking our own justification in everything that we do. And that changes everything though. To be in Adam is to reflect Adam. It is to reflect the one who thought he knew better than God and can figure out life on his own apart from what God called him to do. In other words, your justification depends on your best effort. Justification is that fancy word for just trying to make yourself right. Like it's up to you to make yourself right. And it looks like a lot of different things. But the shape it's taken in recent years, and I think y'all's generation is facing that, more directly than even mine did or does is that to be justified is to be the most authentic version of yourself that you possibly can be. That you are the one who ultimately is going to assign meaning for your life. You're the one who's ultimately going to figure it out. You're the one who's ultimately going to say, I'm better because of this. I'm right because of this. Um, Alan Noble is a guy who wrote a book called you are not your own. I'm currently reading it. You should get it and read it. Cause it's fantastic. I'm two chapters in and it's amazing. Um, But Noble writes this. He says, if I am my own and I belong to myself, the first and most significant implication is that I am wholly responsible for my life. This is both an exhilarating and terrifying thought. And it's not that I'm responsible for my personal survival, for food and shelter and so on. I also need a reason to live. I need purpose and direction. I need some way to know when I am failing at life and when I am succeeding and when I am living ethically and when I am not. I must have some way of determining on my deathbed that I lived a good, full life. And if your meaning is up to you, that when you're in that moment, if you have that moment of lucidity before you die, it is your complete and total responsibility to look back at the sum of your life and say, I lived a good life. And I think he's right. That's a terrifying thought. It's also really exciting, isn't it? It's the good old American way that you can do anything that you want if you just work hard enough. If you do the right thing, if you pursue the right ends, you make enough money, you say your prayers and take your vitamins with all the other little hulkamaniacs, like it's all going to work out. But then, but then that nagging doubt starts to seep in is that what if, what if all of this is not enough? What if at that moment, at the end of my life, I'm looking back and I can't say for certain that I did the right thing. I can't say for certain that my life had the most meaning. Maybe it's not even on your deathbed. Maybe it's at a moment where uh, you forgot to charge your phone and so like it's dead and you have to like think, you have to think your thoughts for a minute, right? Or the internet's out, you know, and you can't connect to stuff. And you stop and ask, am I, am I actually Okay. Am I a good person? And and if, and if you could even start to answer that question, how would you define that? How would you even define what being okay means or being a good person means? And if the answer was no, how would you make it right? Noble says, the terrifying thing is that everyone else in society is doing the exact same thing. Everyone is on their own private journey of self-discovery and self-expression so that at times modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own name so that everyone else knows they exist and who they are, which is a fairly accurate description of social media. To be recognized is to draw the gaze and the attention of others. To be affirmed is to draw their positive gaze. And this is the result of all this, but if we are all responsible for creating and expressing our own identities, then everyone is in competition with everyone else for limited attention and no one is secure enough in their own identity to ground us with their approval. So it's a whole bunch of people who are trying to forge their own meaning and then find approval from a whole bunch of other people who are also trying to forge their own meaning. And uh, (laughs) I told some of y'all I was going to do this. Um, I think Olivia Rodrigo's song, Jealousy, Jealousy, sums this up perfectly. She says this, she says, I kind of want to throw my phone across the room because all I see are girls too good to be true. With paper white teeth and perfect bodies, I wish I didn't care. I know their beauty's not my lack, but it feels like that weight is on my back and I can't let it go. Think about what she's saying, right? She knows that she shouldn't care. She knows that when she sees another beautiful person that it shouldn't bother her. And yet she knows that she can't let it go. That she can't just be okay with it. She knows that someone else being beautiful has nothing to do with her. She knows that she shouldn't care. But this is the world in that we're all competing. Like, do you ever feel that? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever looked at another person and, and, and even though like their success or their wealth or their beauty or whatever, it has nothing to do with you, you still feel jealous and you still are like, I've got to get ahead of them. I've got to get ahead of him or her. And I would love to sit here and tell you that you know, five weeks short of my 37th birthday that I figured this out. But she goes on to say this in the song, um, getting all the things I want, I'm happy for them, but then again, I'm not. Just cool vintage clothes and vacation photos. Like, I wish I didn't have to be this vulnerable right now, but I cannot tell you how many of my friends my age that I think, wow, they're better dressed than me, they go on cooler vacations than me, they're my dear friends, and I sort of hate them. (laughs) Right? Right? Why does an 18-year-old girl understand so clearly what it's like to be a 36-year-old father of two? But aren't we all there in one way or another? Aren't we? Think about that. Maybe, and maybe it's not you're jealous of somebody else's looks or their money, but you work just as hard as they do. Why don't you have the grade that they have? You know, you're trying just as hard as they are why are they considered a spiritual leader on a Christian campus the way that they are and you're not? Why do they have the talent or why do they have whatever and you don't? And and what this does is it starts to spill over into all of our relationships. And so all of a sudden, since my meaning and my value and my morality and ultimately my justification is entirely up to me, what happens is everybody else becomes a threat. Jealousy, jealousy hits us all so close to home because we can't help it and we don't know what to do about it. We know that we shouldn't be jealous. We know that we shouldn't use people. We know we shouldn't do all kinds of things that we do and yet we can't stop because that is the world that we live in. That's what we swim in. How do you know that you matter? Well, you know that you matter because you try really hard to matter more than everybody else. How do you know that you're righteous or moral enough by being more righteous or more moral than everyone else? How do you know that you're pretty enough? How do you know that you're fit enough or rich enough or smart enough? Because if you watch TV for five seconds, they sell you on all this stuff. And hopefully now at this point, however many years after it's been released, 50 cents, get rich or die trying, starts to become prophetic. (laughs) He's right. See, entering into everyday life thinking this way, it has devastating effects on everything that we do. If I have to matter more, I can help the cause by making other people matter less. So now your win is my loss. Your beauty is my lack. And what happens is we sit down at the end of the day exhausted and anxious and depressed all the time because you bought this lie that you can be whoever and whatever you want if you're just authentic enough. But now it's authenticity that you're not even going to be guaranteed is socially acceptable tomorrow. But that's the first thing that does is, is, is this, it creeps in when we represent ourselves ultimately and completely Everybody else becomes a threat. Everybody else becomes competition. But it also impacts the way that we view God because I think a lot of us have a hard time thinking about God because of how our relationships shape us. Think about it. God presents himself as a father throughout Scripture. But maybe your dad has never been in your life. Or maybe he was in your life, but he was abusive. Or maybe he was physically present, but he was emotionally and spiritually distant. And so you have a hard time trusting God because... He's a father. Your dad sucked. So God must suck. Right. It's easy for those things to shape it. God presents himself as a friend, but your friends are the worst, right? Like you hang out with them because they're there and it beats being alone. But you know, the only, the only way you think you can tolerate them is to just be with them and be so drunk or so high that all you do is just like laugh at how much you make fun of each other. Because really you're just saying what you really think. And because that's how your friends are, that's how you end up viewing God. God presents himself as a shepherd, but you had a bad experience in church. Maybe a pastor lied to you, or he was too authoritarian, heaven forbid he was abusive, or whatever. So if the pastor is supposed to be one of God's representatives, then it's hard to trust the real thing, because you've had such crappy representation. And all of a sudden, what's happened is that your relationships with yourself, in your friendships and dating, hopefully in your future marriages with God, everything else, all of these things, your relationships start to become a proving ground where you approach them completely as if to say, I have to prove that I matter and I'm going to do anything I can regardless of what it does to somebody else to prove that I'm important because every single thing that you do is either going to justify you or condemn you. And if you think about it that way and you're honest about it, it is freaking exhausting it's so tiring because creating your own meaning is miserable and look y'all all of this is very real and it's very painful i don't want to diminish any of that but that very real hurt and that very real struggle shows us that we actually are created for something different that we're created for something more and i think that's what's on full display in genesis 15 because in romans 5 Paul talks about death in Adam, but he also talks about life in Christ. Romans five seventeen. For if because of one man's trespass, death trespass. There's a lot of S's and T's together here. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Y'all, this is the glory, this is the beauty of being in Christ because Jesus, as your covenant head, means that you receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness from him, period. So instead of creating your own meaning, which is exhausting and leads to death, God declares you righteous because of what Jesus did. That where we fail in Adam's sin, if you're in Christ, you live in his life. Your deepest longings for connection are met, not by people who are going to fail you, but by the God who designed you to reflect him. In Romans 5, again, Paul says that one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. One man's obedience, by one man's obedience, will the many be made righteous, and that grace reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life. That your meaning, your value, your morality comes from something that is so much bigger than you. It comes from something outside of you. And listen to this. Hebrews uh, 6, 13 through 20 um, is kind of the New Testament's way, excuse me, is the New Testament's way of explaining Genesis 15. Which, by the way, if you're ever reading the Old Testament and you're confused, like read Hebrews alongside of it because Hebrews is like a really short, concise commentary on the entire Old Testament and it's great. Um, But listen to this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And it gets even better. We have, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a, forbidden, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's a, lot, there's a lot there, a lot of stuff that we don't have time to go into. But what's happening here is that whoever wrote Hebrews had Genesis 15 in mind. And what this writer is saying is that when God wanted to show Abraham beyond any shadow of a doubt that he was going to do what he said he would do, that he would be faithful and fulfill his promises to him, God swore an oath by himself. And because of the way the covenants work in the Bible, he's also making this promise to his descendants. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says about this passage. He says, Abraham, I'm putting my very deity on the line here. I'm swearing to you by my holy nature, if I don't keep this word, I will no longer be God. And God made a covenant with Abraham. He made a promise and he backs up that promise, which is not just to Abraham, but to all of God's people. He makes a promise that he seals with an oath based on his own very nature. There is no conceivably higher guarantee than that. So here's the thing. When you start to look at this and you start to wonder, like, how do I know that God is faithful? How do I know that God is good? How do I know all these things about who he is and what he says? That that in Genesis 15, in this passage, God is saying, if I am not who I say I am, may I die. God is saying that about himself. That the entire Bible, that he says he's going to either keep his promises to you or he's going to cease being God. We see that covenant unfold from the very first promise in Genesis 3 as it unfolds through Adam, Abram, Noah, David, Ezekiel, and ultimately in Christ. That this is the way that God works. Hebrews 9 13 and 14 says that for if the blood of bulls, uh, goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Y'all, this means that in Christ, you are justified. We said, uh, I said earlier tonight, and this is going to be one of the recurring themes throughout the series, is that really studying relationships is, is studying sanctification. Like it's a, it's a lab for doing that research. Um, but sanctification begins with Justification. And it starts with this moment where God says, as he does in Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ and that there is no one left to bring any charge against God's people. And so what it means is that in Christ, you have the value, the meaning, the righteousness, and everything else that you're looking for. You have every single benefit with God that Jesus Christ has because of what he has given to you. And so these questions that we're all trying to answer, what we're bringing with us into every one of our relationships is now answered in Christ. And because Jesus has secured peace between you and God, all these relationships around you that always feel like a proving ground, that if you're honest, you feel like you can never quite be enough, that if you're in Christ, these things go from being a proving ground to being a playground. Where you can enjoy the wonderful gifts that God has given you, you can enjoy the people, the emotions, the connection, all that good stuff, because it's there to be enjoyed and viewed as a gift from a loving Father who gives freely. And practically, it looks like groups of friends who aren't constantly sitting around making fun of each other because deep down they hate themselves. And I've been there. That was me and a bunch of my. Told something on that story. Um, but it's a group of friends who constantly encourage each other and lift one another up because they're not constantly competing for approval. It looks like dating relationships with healthy boundaries, not asking how far is too far, but asking how do I treat this person who is made in the image of God with the respect that that image deserves? We're going to explore the how far is too far question later, just not tonight. It looks like family relationships that can acknowledge the failure and the hurt and ask forgiveness, and seek reconciliation as impossible as that might seem at times because we know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, God has made that move first with us. It looks like acknowledging your anxiety, depression, sadness, even your happiness, your excitement, and your joy and bringing them to the God who has promised that he is making all things new. do so I want to close with this. Um, this is uh, from the... Uh, <laughs> from the very theological movie toy story. Um, it actually, it actually is. Um, but, but, uh, so Buzz and Woody are trapped at Sid's house. You know, Sid's the next door neighbor who does psychotic things to his toys. And, uh, you know, the whole movie, um, Woody, who's always been Andy's favorite toy is, is threatened by Buzz Lightyear, right? The new, uh, the new cooler toy. Um, And Buzz doesn't even realize he's a toy until he sees a Buzz Lightyear commercial. And so Woody's trying to get Buzz to to kind of snap out of this depression and, and to escape and get back with Andy. And Buzz is depressed and he says that he's only a stupid, little, insignificant toy. And he doesn't know why Andy would ever want him. And Woody says this, he says, why would Andy want you? Look at you, you're Buzz Lightyear. Any other toy would give up his moving parts to be you. You've got wings, you glow in the dark, you talk, your helmet does that whoosh thing. You're a cool toy. As a matter of fact, you're too cool. I mean, what chances does a toy like me have against a Buzz Lightyear action figure? Why would Andy ever wanna play with me when he's got you? I'm the one that should be strapped to that rocket. Do you feel the jealousy coming out in Woody's voice? In Woody's words, do you feel the resentment? Well, what happens next? Buzz looks at his foot, and he sees that Andy has written his name on it. And he realizes that Andy wants him simply because he's his. And here's what I want you to take home, that as, we, as you listen to that about, about Woody talking about all the things that he would give up to be Buzz Lightyear, I want you to think about all the things that Jesus gave up to have you. That Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who's existed from all time in perfect communion with the Father, would give that up to come to earth to live the perfect life that we could never live and paid the price of the death that we could never afford. What if, what if that God loves you, calls you, saves you, and justifies you for no other reason, simply because you're his? Simply because he loves you. And this is the thing. When God passed through those cut up animal pieces in Genesis 15, and he declared that he would be cut to pieces like those animals if we were unfaithful, he knew full well that he would be. That Jesus knew that one day, someday, his body would be broken, his blood would be spilled. But the Bible tells us that Jesus even took that up as joy. That he did it for the joy that was set before him to write his name on your foot, to claim you as his. And so what if, instead of having to prove yourself to God, he simply asks you to trust that he has already proven himself to you. Because I think that changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again. Um, Thank you again for your word. Thank you again for this promise. Lord, thank you that you, uh, Lord, you never ask us to prove ourselves to you. You simply ask us to trust that you have proven yourself to us. And Lord, we thank you for that that visible reminder. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that you um, came to earth and you lived the life that that we were supposed to live and you paid the price that we couldn't. So Lord, I pray for those of us tonight who believe this, who know this. uh, God, would you remind us? Would you help us to dig deeper into that? Lord, for those of us tonight that maybe don't know this yet, God, that that this would start to pique our interest, that we would start to ask questions, that we might go home even tonight, talk to a friend, and ask more about this. Lord, would you do these things? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.